Alright, welcome back to Ginemai. Thanks for being here. I look forward to these nights because of the people who are here. Actually, that's only half true. I look forward to these nights because of Bowser that happens before we get here. And then the work that happens after we get here and the questions and all that stuff. It's a lot of fun for me. That's okay. I don't care. <laughs> Precisely. Alright, two terms to know. Positionally and experientially. Do you feel like you know these terms yet? <laughs> Have we used these terms yet? Not all that much, okay? Just know them. A reference to one's position in relationship to something else and a reference to one's experience in relationship to something else. Okay. God's the author of James. James is the writer of James. He's the brother of Jesus. No joke or pun going to be proclaimed. You already think of it in your head. Well, if you want to say it, you can. Go ahead. It was written to the believing Jews who were scattered because of persecution from Jerusalem. We call them the diaspora because that's the Greek word that is used to refer to them. James deals with the topic of true spirituality through faith and action, self-control, unselfishness, generosity, impartiality, patience, and then submission to God through prayer. And through these things, he through the book of James, we learn what true spirituality means and actually the mechanics in order to be truly spiritual. Pisteos is the word for we, from which we get faith. Uh, it's also pistine or pistis is the root word from which we get believe or trust. Um, and it means complete dependency. As a feminine noun, it means based on response. That is that you actually understand information and then respond to it and either depend upon it or not. If you depend upon it, then you have faith in it based upon response to your analysis of that information. And it identifies a dependency that's placed on one object by another object or person in which that object must be completely supporting the other. Model of humanity which Christ showed us is that God is the Father and He initiates and mankind was created by God to be responders to Him so that God says do this and man says okie dokie. That's the technical term. That's what Jesus showed us when He was here on earth. That is what we would call a relationship that is operating properly or what we would say also is being in fellowship or a right standing relationship with God is one in which we are submitted to Him as He initiates and we respond with the actions that He asks us to do. Human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. Things that go on here and the way we see them and everything we develop and learn from this world system, that's human viewpoint. Divine viewpoint is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth doctrines of God's world system. So what God teaches us and that should trump human viewpoint. We should be operating in divine viewpoint. And if we are operating in the model of humanity properly, we will be allowing our human viewpoint to be replaced by divine viewpoint. Part of that, Romans 12, 1, have your mind renovated with truth so that you know what the will of God is. That's a summary. Okay, last week I mentioned this term, the faith rest technique. Um, and I didn't really explain it. So this is actually new material. Um, but I wanted to identify what it was. It's basically what we've been talking about to some degree. But the faith rest technique is the act of relying upon God's promises and doctrines through faith, again, that complete dependency, during circumstances which are humanly trying or difficult. Quran tribulation protocol is, the, is actually, you could really call it faith rest technique. The concept that when a trial pops up, you'd rely upon what God has said about the situation. You use his truth to get you through it. And you depend upon his promise that everything will be okay, or whatever promise is applicable to that situation. Now, this is an ability that believers are to develop and practice. 
but it requires knowledge of God's promises and application of Bible doctrine, and it must be done within your relationship to God. In other words, if we attempt to take what God has taught us and do it apart from Him or apart from depends upon Him, where we are now initiating to ourselves what we are supposed to be doing and even using Bible doctrine to accomplish that, we are sinning and we are not actually operating in faith rest, we're operating in self-rest, or depends upon self instead of depends upon other things that God has said are good and valuable to us, such as his promises and uh, Bible doctrine. Now, application of Bible doctrine, here's a little side note, this is extra, no charge. <clears throat> to apply the Bible means that you depend upon it. Okay, we a lot of times hear, this is what God says, go do it. Okay, but the mechanics by which we go do that means that we actually have to identify and agree, yes, this is right, yes, this is what God wants, this is actually in reality what God is saying, and then say, I'm going to depend upon that rather than the opposite or something else that's a variant of it. We have to actually depend upon it, put our faith in it, and when we make that complete dependency, that's when we actually end up applying it to our lives. It's not something we say, apply this to our lives, apply this to our lives, apply this to our lives, and bang our head against the wall. It's based upon our dependency upon what God has said to be truth and real for us. It is real in reality, but we have to accept it for ourselves as God's truth in order for it to apply to our lives. Bible doctrine applies itself when we depend upon it, in other words. <clears throat> the faith rest technique allows the believer to rest in faith upon God because of his promises and the doctrines that he has taught despite the degree of difficulty of the circumstances one finds himself in. In other words, these human or these divine viewpoint solutions don't care what kind of situation you're in. They work all the time because they are laws or um, spiritual laws, which are part of God's world system and not humanity, humanity's world system. So when I refer to the faith rest technique, it's that first paragraph, the act of relying upon God's promises and doctrines through faith during circumstances which are humanly difficult or trying. We're supposed to be faithfully rested upon Him at all times, so that when something goes awry, we don't just freak out and go crazy. <clears throat> Alright, Review of Trials and Tribulation, Part 11.1 which is our first part of verse 12. Blessed is, is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is an expanded translation of the first part, and what I mean by expanded translation is I've taken our definitions and the grammar that we focus on, and I've put them into the literal interpretation of the verse. There's more information we can draw from the Greek than is in this expanded translation, but I put all the things that we dealt with specifically into this last week. Man possessing inner happinesses. Now I put the colon there because this comes from, again from the phrase, blessed is the man, or blessed is a man. Blessed is actually an adjective, and that's the phrase possessing inner happinesses. Man is the one who is being described by it. So we've got a colon there that says this is the man who is blessed, or this is the man who possesses inner happiness. One who really performs the action to remain under something which attempts to learn the character or nature of him through evaluation because really participating in the action of becoming into a state of existence as genuine through transition from one state into another as a matter of principle and as the result of testing dot dot dot. Now if you notice we're missing a part because we had that because and then we had a couple words about 50 of them and then we had dot dot dot. So we're missing a part. That part is what we're going to study tonight, and we're going to put this whole thing back together and see it. Um, this is why they don't do this in English Bibles. 
Okay, I've said that before, I'll say it again. It's hard to read. You really have to parse through it, go slowly. Um, something I'm not good at is going slowly. But you can look at it, you can read it, and as you mull over it, you start to understand how the different pieces are working together. Now we explained this all last week. That doesn't mean you remember all of it this week. So if you want after tonight and you haven't seen the notes from last week yet, I'd recommend going back and looking at them if you have questions or confusion on it um, because it, it'll start making a little more sense when you have both, both studies involved. <clears throat> what we're talking about here is that the man who is blessed, the one who possesses their happiness, is, is the one who is persevering under trial, remaining under the trial rather than escaping it. And because of that, remaining, because he's remaining under the trial, he is actually being changed from ingenuine to genuine. Now, what is that adjective genuine referring to? Righteousness. When we are operating as humans on earth, we are positionally righteous. In Christ, in our position in him, God declares us as righteous and holy and blameless. But experientially, in our experiences, our walk, we aren't righteous in our actions. So the more that we rely upon God and his doctrines, the more righteous we will become in our actions. Now, perfect righteousness on this earth is possible, but not probable because of the sin nature. But we will not obtain perfect righteousness in our experience until after we depart this earth. Okay, the possibility is there. Probability, not going to happen for us. We have sin, but the concept is that if God says, well, the moment you're saved, to trust and obey, and you trust and obey, and you trust and obey for the rest of your life, you would be sinless at that point, experiencing your righteous in your walk. Now, that wouldn't preclude everything else you've done. So, you want to be righteous on your own, it would be out of um, obedience to God. But the fact of the matter is the Bible says that we can be sinless in every moment. However, the repetition of all those moments causes us trouble because we are led astray and drawn astray, and we walk astray on our own. Okay, two parts from last week that we have previously identified. Number one, the man who remains under trials, which are attempting to learn his character through evaluation, is the one who possesses inner happinesses. Remember we said it's an adjective describing the one who remains under trials. When you remain under trial, when you allow those trials to, to go on without letting them conquer you, but you are in faith resting upon God, His promises, and His word, you will actually be able to be in possession of inner happiness. Now, <clears throat> tonight we're looking at the second part, which is part of that reason. And we started that last week with the words, because, um, because He being tested and found as genuine through transition from one state into another, dot, dot, dot. We started that part last week, so we'll pick that up. But this is a reference to a believer who is implementing trial and tribulation protocol successfully during the trial, or who is operating with the faith rest technique. Okay? The faith rest technique deals with all situations they're trying and difficult, whether they're a trial or a tribulation. Uh, trial and tribulation protocol, specifically that trial and tribulation concept. So faith rest kind of over, I want to say overwhelms, but that's not right. Uh, it, it kind of is the umbrella over, in which trial and tribulation protocol will reside. Okay? So it is a part, trial and tribulation protocol is a part of the faith rest technique. But the faith rest technique can be implemented outside of a trial and tribulation. Number two, the second part we looked at last week is that the one who remains under trials is actually participating in the act of becoming genuine, and that's genuinely in reference, or genuine in reference to righteousness, through his spiritual maturation. Yes. Process of maturing. There you go. 
Genuine righteousness is the result. It's not a real word, technically. But it's, it's not. No. Maturation is maturation. Pardon my typos. There we go. Okay, part two. The one who remains. Good catch. Under trials is participating in the act of becoming genuine in reference to righteousness through spiritual maturation or maturation or maturation. Yeah, it's true. One's a little more French, but that's enough about that. They said this to you a lot. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid this too much. <laughs> mature. Mature. <laughs> Okay, genuine righteousness is the spiritual product of remaining under trials in complete dependency upon God using Bible doctrine previously having been studied. Now, we, we already learned that. That was back in the first few verses. When you depend upon God, when you remain under the trial in faith and rest upon Him and His doctrines and His promises, you are actually producing the faith action product which is spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. Okay, review side note number one. To be, in quotes, more like Christ, is to ex experientially participate in your spiritual development by God through dependence upon Him and His Word in and out of every moment. And I put that phrase in quotes because we hear it oftentimes. We're supposed to be more like Christ. Actually, we're not. We're supposed to be righteous as Christ was righteous. But our purpose on life is to glorify God. When we glorify God, we do what he says. When we do what he says, we are made more like Christ because Christ was righteous. It is the byproduct of our purpose, of our ultimate goal. Our focus isn't to go in and be more like Christ. Our focus is to glorify God. How do we do that? We operate in the relationship we have with him. That then produces within us the righteousness that Christ had. And as a result, we are made more like Christ. That's just a technical issue that I have that you can debate with me all you want later. Man does not live on bread alone, Matthew 4, 4, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Review side note number one, part two. The little button is broken apparently. Okay, the Greek word used to translate the English phrase every word, or the Greek words used to translate the English phrase every word are ponti rema. The phrase literally means every single word, and rhema refers to the technical characteristics or aspects of each word. It's not talking about the ultimate message. That'd be logos. It's talking about rhema, the specific word, in a specific order, and the technical aspect of those words, including its definition and its grammar. Um, it's therefore not the spirit of the law, but the letter that we're looking at here. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word, every technical aspect of the words that come out of God's mouth. That would indicate to us the great need for us to study Scripture in detail and in depth so that we understand every word that comes out of God's mouth. I would suggest to you that that is your commission by God to then go and learn the original languages. But some people would disagree with that, and I would disagree with them, and so we'll leave it at that. Why is my button broken? Review of Trials and Tribulation, part 11.1. Again, these are the two parts we've previously identified. The man who remains under trials is the one who possesses inner happinesses. 
And number two, the one who remains under trials is participating in the act of becoming genuine in reference to righteousness through spiritual maturation. Spelled it properly there. You don't like that word? No. Yeah, it's not a pleasant word. All right, tonight. <laughs> Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once. Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We've already looked at all that part except for the he will receive part from there on. So tonight we'll look at the he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Get ready. This is, this is a good one. Okay, part two of our study of James 1.12 picks up with the verb lampsatai, which has been translated in the New American Standard as he will receive, but being a future middle indicative verb, which literally means take hold, to take hold of something, we'll actually see there's a little bit of difference than receiving. That would be passive in nature. Um, this is a little bit more participative, where we are actually taking hold, reaching out, and grabbing something. Now, because it means to take hold of something, it requires two things, an action and an object. The action to reach out and take hold, but what are you taking hold of? The thing, the object. Okay, so we're looking for two things here. We know what the action is. We need to find out what the object is, ultimately. So keep that in the back of your head. Now, this is a future middle indicative verb, and we'll look at that in just a second. But the subject of the verb, meaning the one that is doing the action, of the verb is the dokamos genomenos from part one of our study on verse 12. Now if you remember the dokamos genomenos is the one who's participating in the action of genomain, of changing from one state into another through a process. Um, now the result of the transition into being genuine and again in the reference of being genuinely righteous is the result of testing. Dokamos is a translated as approved, and again it means genuine as the result of testing. That concept of being approved is to test something, test what the specifications for it are, make it match. Um, we approve gold as gold when it doesn't have any other alloyed metal in it, okay, or anything else in it. When it gets melted down, we say that is gold. So it's gone through a trial, just like we do in different aspects of our life, whether it's a trial and tribulation or other things. So we're talking about the believer who is being changed from unrighteousness to righteousness and the result being that he comes out as approved or as genuine as a result of testing. Now, that little last phrase in there, as a matter of principle, the reason that that is a spiritual law is because this goes back to the blessed man. Okay, so we're talking about the blessed man who is the one doing what? Persevering under trial. Remain under trial. He's implementing the faith rest technique. Trial and tribulation protocol have been put into place and operating. And he is blessed. He possesses inner happiness because of those things. Now, because of those things, we know, especially from verses 2 through 4, that he is producing spiritual maturity, which is changing him from being ingenuinely righteous to genuinely righteous in his experience. So that change from one state into another is the result and will always happen when we use the faith rest technique and trial and tribulation protocol. In that sense, it's a law. So this is a matter of principle that we will that the believer will be changed from ingenuine righteousness to genuine righteousness when faith rest technique is implemented. It's a principle in the sense that it's a spiritual law. It happens. When you use faith rest technique, this happens. Input, output, done deal. 
So our subject here, the one taking hold of something, is the dokamos genomenos, the one that is being changed through, or being made genuine as a result of testing. Now this human is a believer in Christ as a savior, dependent upon God and his word, and participating in his spiritual maturation. <clears throat> this is the one taking hold of something. This is our subject. The belief, one is, who is a believer, one who is dependent upon God and his word and the faith rest technique, and because of that is participating in his spiritual maturation. Is that better? Growth. Spiritual growth, spiritual growth yeah. I don't like growth because it actually doesn't quite get the process concept in my mind. But that's just discourse analysis. Alright, that sounds good. Lamsatai means he will receive, or has been translated as he will receive. And I noted earlier that it was a future middle indicative verb, which tells us about this action of taking hold of something. Tense in Koine Greek again identifies the time, well, let me rephrase that. Again, it identifies the type of action. Now this is a future action, which means that it will occur in the future, which is a time. But it's a future type of action. It's, it's a different kind of concept. The time is involved, but it's about 20%. And the type of action, being a future action, one that has yet to come, is about 80% the focus. Greek tense always deals with type over time. Um, time is a part of the concept, but it's minuscule. It's not a large part of the uh, deal. Greek talks about when or how an action occurs and the type of action it is more so than when the action occurs. Lamsatai is a future tense verb which means to take hold of something at a point in time in the future. Okay, So you got the timeline there with the red line where the statement was made and then the dot represented the occurrence of the action of taking hold. We can understand that. That's probably the closest correlation to an English tense that the Greek has in my opinion. Voice, in Koine Greek, we have lame satai as being middle voice. Therefore, number two, the subject participates in the action is the filter we place on the word. This identifies the subject as one who participates in the action of taking hold of something. Okay, now, that's an important thing to note for later. Mood, in Koine Greek, number one, indicative mood identifies reality. Lame satai is in the indicative mood. Therefore, this is a re real thing. In reality, this is happening. Okay. Our expanded translation of Lamsatai is, he really participates in the action of taking hold of something at a point in time in the future. So we've taken those three parts of grammar, we've stuffed them in there, we've added the third person singular um, that is already implied and inferred in the part, previous part of the verse, um, and in the participle, we can see it coming through in the grammar. But Lamsatai, in this arrangement here, means he really participates in the action of taking hold of something at a point in time in the future. So if he's participating, that means that there's someone or something else participating with him. He's not the only one. They could have used the, the active voice. He's the one performing the action to take hold of. Could have used the passive voice. He's the one being acted upon to take hold of something or receiving something. Um, this is a phenomenal thing if you understand what the Greek mindset is trying to portray, and I'll try and get that across um, if it's a little cloudy. Our the believer that we're talking about, the one that's dependent completely upon God and his word in and out of every moment, is the one that is really participating in the action of taking hold of something at a point in time in the future. So that's our subject with our verb, uh, or with our participle. Now, what is the object 
which is being taken hold of. That's Talon Stefanon Tace Zoace. The Crown of Life is what it's been translated as as a New American Standard. Um, now, literally, it means the crown, the life. The of comes from that word taste. It's implied because the taste is a genitive identifying source or possession. So it's the crown belonging or pertaining to life. Therefore, it is the crown of life. There are a number of crowns mentioned in Scripture. Um, however, there are two basic types of crowns which, in which these numerous crowns may be categorized. Here's our two types. Diadema, we mentioned these, I think, last week a little bit too. The king's crown. It's a crown made of metal and gems, which is designed to signify royal status. It includes honor, and that honor is based or because of authority. Whoever has the crown is king. Okay? They rule. You want the crown, you've got to kill the king, you've got to take the, take the crown. Okay? That's the diadema. We're not talking about a diadema in James 1.12. We're talking about a Stephanos crown, which is the runner's crown. It's a wreath designed to be worn upon the head as an award or honor, and it typically is signifying achievement or accomplishment. Okay, how many of you guys remember seeing the Olympic Games in Athens or hearing about them? Recently, not the ones like long, long, like ancient Greece. <laughs> they actually gave out a gold medal, and they gave out these little olive wreath crowns. That goes all the way back to the original Olympic Games. That's the concept. That's the type of crown we're talking about here. When you see, like... Yeah, they don't mention the crowns. Um, but it was one of the things I thought was neat when the Olympic Games came to Athens is they actually gave out the crowns that they did when they first started the thing. Uh, I'm just glad they didn't make the athletes perform without clothes on. <laughs> they did that? Yes, that was, that was original. Yes. Absolutely. That's when. That's probably when the radio got invented. Previously. I don't want to see it. I just want to hear yeah, about it. All right. So. Yeah, it's part of the whole. The athletes were the most magnificent body bodily specimens that they had. All right. So we're talking about Stephanos crowns or the the wreath concept. <laughs> We're not going to make it to Avengers, I'm telling you. <laughs> Stephanos crowns were given out to victors of Greek games, were worn by dancers in celebration of accomplishment or at the end of a war, perchance, and are mentioned in Scripture as awards for the believer who accomplishes spiritual achievements. Okay, Now, some people say there are four, some people say there are five, some people say there's three billion. I have identified clearly three in Scripture that says the crown of this, the crown of this, the crown of this. There's a fourth one that is very close to almost being directly identified, uh, but I didn't give it to you here because I didn't in good conscience feel like I could actually justify that to you yet. Question? Dr. Troy there are four according to him, and I did not follow his uh, okay. study notes well enough to understand whether or not the fourth one was legitimate, although trusting him as implicitly as I do, I'm certain that it's probably there. I just didn't see it for myself, so I didn't want to present it. <clears throat> Number one, the crown of righteousness from 1 Timothy 4.8. Number two, the crown of glory from 1 Peter 5.4. Number three, the crown of life from James 1.12, our verse here, and Revelation 2.10. Both times it's mentioned. So we've got the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the crown of life. And again, these are Stephanos crowns. These are wreaths. 
in other words, that are placed upon the head. The crown of righteousness comes from 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, which says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to the all also to all who have loved his appearing. Who are those who have loved his appearing? Believers. Okay, you have two categories, those who hate Jesus' appearing and those who love Jesus' appearing. That love is unconditional love, which manifests itself in giving. That hate it means to disallow the claim. So if Jesus says that he is the Messiah and you hate him, you will say, no, you are not. I reject you as the Messiah. I will find another way. So we've got the haters of Jesus and the lovers of Jesus. All those who have loved his appearing are the ones who are believers. Okay, so that's what it's referring to there. Technology really doesn't want to cooperate with me tonight. I'm not really sure why. Okay, the crown of righteousness is awarded to the believer who follows God's course for his or her life. The word righteousness is from the Greek word dikaiosune, which means conformity to the specifications of the blueprint. Now, this is specifically talking about the blueprint for an individual believer's life. Let's go back and look at what Paul wrote to Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Um, and I believe if you look in your Bible, someone look at it real quick. Pop that up for me and see if there's a different word in there that I may have left out. Second Timothy 4, 7 to 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Okay, I didn't leave the word out like I thought I had, which is good. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Now, look what he says here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He's talking about his fight, his course, his faith. Okay, And in the future, there is laid up for him the crown of righteousness because of those three things. It's a great question. Let me get open to the Greek text and see if we can actually answer that for you. If I can actually get there. It's got plastic on it. <laughs> the good struggle I have struggled, the course I have finished, the faith I have kept. Um, the faith is actually generic. The course, dramon, is accusative, and it's actually talking about a specific course. Um, from what I can see here, I don't see the indication specifically in the Greek text of his. But... I can look at that a little more in depth later and find it for you. Um, go ahead. So it almost sounded from what you read just now. Again, I, I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about, so forgive me if I'm telling you anything about what I'm talking about. But it sounded like the faith was general, uh -huh. faith, and the course was specific. So we may all keep the same faith, but the course that we have is maybe different. Yeah, and the, the accusative is used there, which identifies a specific course. Right. And it's not in that generic concept as like the faith I have kept. Um, although faith 
is either going to be dative or accusative there. And I'm guessing accusative just based on the context. So it would identify specific faith also. So it's something I didn't look at because I didn't want to spend time on it yet. But if you would like more information on that, I can do the work for you and put, put it on the website for you later. Probably like Thursday. Does that work? Sure. Okay. Back to the crown of righteousness. Uh Facebook and the church website. Okay. Because I'm not on Facebook, so there are other ways to play. Yeah. The church website every night when I post the after our session I'll post on Facebook and the church website. Um, with the exception of last week, which I didn't get on there until like Wednesday night. But Emily, the answer to your question will come so partly. Is that really my fault? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's okay. Don't cry. <laughs> the only the answer to your, part of the answer to your question will come when you, without understanding the word righteousness, um, and we'll we'll look at it just a second here. Uh, actually, we're gonna look at it right now. The word righteousness is from the Greek word dikaiosune, which means conforming to the spe specifications of the blueprint. When a believer follows God's directive will which we identify as God saying, do this. This is what my perfect plan would, for you would be. I want you to do this in this moment, in and out of every moment. This is what I would like for you to do. As he directs you in every moment, if you obey him every moment, that would be his directive will, his perfect plan, his ultimate will. Um, I don't know how many other terms you can give for it that are actually like theological terms that people use. Um, this isn't his moral or ethical will. This is him saying, directively, this is what I want you to do, his directive will. Um, when a believer follows God's directive will for his life, he receives the crown of righteousness. To do this, the believer must be in fellowship with God's will for his life, in and out every moment. The focus here isn't on, did you accept Christ as your Savior? Okay, We can't earn that kind of a crown. That's something we just say, Jesus, take my sins, I'm placing, you, I'm placing them on you, and I'm asking for you to be my Savior. And I will rely upon you and you alone for that. That's not a crown that we earn. Okay? That's not a crown that we really get. The, all the crowns that we deal with are based upon our actions once we've been saved, how we deal with certain things. So when a believer follows God's directive will for his life, he receives the crown of righteousness. Again, to do this, he must be in fellowship with God's will for his life. Ephesians 5.18, <coughs> I told you we talked about drunk again, says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You saw the beginning of my slide. Okay. This is not a second filling. Okay. A lot of times you'll, you'll hear the term second filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of charismatic or Pentecostal churches will use this to be that once you're saved, you have to show evidence of salvation. Therefore, you have to have the second filling of the Holy Spirit. You're indwelled. Now you have to have him filling you. And if you're filling him, if he fills you, then you'll speak in tongues or do some miracle or that kind of thing. This isn't something that comes and goes. Well, not in that kind of sense. It comes and goes depending on whether or not we're in fellowship with God. We are indwelled by God at salvation. That is clearly identified in Scripture. The Holy Spirit indwells us, but the Holy Spirit doesn't control us. The Greek word here for be filled is pleruste, which means saturated to the point of control. Okay? When we are filled or saturated to the point of control with the Holy Spirit, we first have to, one, be in fellowship, and two, be submitted to God. Now, if we're in fellowship, we are submitted to God. But both those aspects have to be there. 
if we're in the proper model of humanity that we've identified, we have the opportunity to be filled with, by the Holy Spirit, saturated to the point of control. This isn't the Holy Spirit coming back into us. This is the Holy Spirit now regaining control of our life because we've submitted that control to Him. Okay. For example, a sponge. Oh boy. Be saturated to the point of control. Imagine this white rectangle is a wash basin. Okay. We've got a cross section of it. So you're looking at it from like, if you cut the sink in half, it still holds water. Yeah, okay. Hang in there. It's not going gonna, not gonna to leave water yet. Okay. So let's, let's fill that with water. Oh, amazing. This is why I was 30 minutes later tonight than I should have been because I spent about an hour on this. No, it was, probably like, it was probably like 30 minutes. I don't know. Okay, so you fill the sink with water and then take one of those Scotch-Brite Scotch sponges and stick it on the water. What's it do? It floats. It floats, right? Now, why doesn't it sink? Well, because there's air in it. And the air keeps it buoyant above the water. Our sponge floats. That's what it naturally does. Okay? So what happens if you push it to the bottom of the sink? Oh, it comes back up. Why? Because, again, a sponge naturally floats. You're, like, amazed at this. I can see it's just, whoa. You're probably more amazed that it took me 30 minutes. Okay? So the sponge is natural characteristic is to float, to be buoyant. But if you take a sponge and you shove it to the bottom of the, the sink and you squeeze it and let all the air out of it, take all the air out of it and let it fill up with water, it will actually stay at the bottom of the sink. Okay, go home and try it. Okay? If it doesn't stay there, you didn't do your job. You didn't get all the air out. I have done this a number of times because I haven't believed myself a number of times. Okay, I've said it and I haven't tried it for a few years. And I'm like, I gotta try that again, make sure that still works. You know, it's not like it's gonna change. Well, there can't be any dishes in your sink to do this. <laughs> yeah. So, so the concept here is that if we're saturated to the point of control, we will not do what our natural tendency would be. What's our natural tendency? To sin, to float. Yeah, floating is unrighteous. Okay, we want to sit at the bottom of the bottom of the sink. That's where we want to be. We want to drown ourselves, identify with our death. Okay, so we're designed originally to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But when it, because of sin and our sin nature, we float. We aren't controlled by the Holy Spirit. We're controlled by our flesh or our sin nature. Same thing. But if we're saturated to the point of control, what it means is that instead of being unrighteous, we'll actually perform righteous deeds. The fruit of the Spirit will become evident within us rather than the fruit, fruit of the flesh, which is the rest of, if you follow Ephesians 5, 17, you can go through and there's a nice whole concept of what operating according to the flesh is and operating according to the Spirit is. It's very neatly laid out. Um, talks about how they're direct opposites, and yet the Holy Spirit and the flesh are two things of the same type, which is an interesting concept, but the Greek word um, alelos means two things of the same kind, and they're both two things that can control humanity. They can control us, either our flesh or the Holy Spirit. I was preaching a sermon on this one time, and I hadn't noticed that word alelos, because the, and the whole time I was preaching the sermon, I had set it up to be the flesh is completely opposite and completely wrong, and not the Spirit. And so I'd been drawing out all the different contrasts between the two, and I got to that one word, and I looked down my outline, and I, outline and I recognized that word, alelos, and I said everything, I said it in my head. I don't know if you know this, but when you're talking in front of people, like preaching or something, you're having a whole conversation going on in your head. Words are coming out of your mouth, and you're like, okay, 
Like, it just, there's so many different things that you're thinking about. And it's hard to really explain until you kind of get there. And it's not just preaching. It's, I mean, you can notice it when you talk, just teach or when you're talking from a crowd. But as I'm sitting there, I'm looking at my outline, I'm thinking alelois, and I know that that means two of the same kind. And here I am saying these are two different things entirely. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to justify that word because my outline is given to every person in the audience. And I put in my outline two of the same kind. I just hadn't noted it in my head for the, the message. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to justify this, bring it back to the point. Well, here's the point. Here's how it works out. The flesh and the spirit produce two completely different fruits, but they are both things by which man is operating. The Holy Spirit controls our human spirit when we are saturated to the point of control. When we are not, when we're out of fellowship with God and we have submitted ourselves to ourselves or to really our flesh, then we are controlled by the flesh. There are two things which control the body. That, again, is extra, no charge. <clears throat> In order to conform to God's will for your life, you must be saturated to the point of control with the Holy Spirit. In order to conform to God's will for your life, you must be saturated to the point of control with the Holy Spirit. Again, we fail in this drastically. This comes from submission to God and His Word through death to oneself. Luke 9.23, pretty famous verse. Jesus is talking. He says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a few things here. One, the desire has to be there. If anyone wishes, that word identifies a volitional choice and desire to follow Christ. And to actually not follow him, but follow in the same manner as him. Uh, so not come behind him, but come in the same way he did. He must deny himself. Number two, this refers to the sin nature. We must deny our own rights and our own privileges as humans with choice to be choice makers for ourselves. It goes back again, ties into Philippians 2.5. Have the statue which in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We thought not robbery may be equal with God, but laid aside his natural rights and privileges as God, and allowed God to lead him. That little last part was my own special paraphrase. And you can look it up and check it later in your Bibles. So part two is denial of yourself. Your volition as your own sovereign kind of capacity, because um, we're really not sovereign over ourselves. We just have free will, and so we think we're sovereign over ourselves and that we have the right to make our own decisions. And then third, or four, third of fourth, take up your cross daily. This is the daily identification of death with yourself. This is the daily putting yourself to death. Time, day in, day out, saying, I am not alive for me. To, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this is the concept of self-denial leads to self-death. Cross is always a symbol of death. This isn't something that we have to bear as a burden. What are we supposed to do with our burdens? Cast our cares upon him, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We don't have this one thing that God's saying, okay, this is your burden. Okay, God doesn't give us burdens. He handles our burdens for us. That's what his, the whole concept of Christianity is about, if you think about it. So number four, simply follow me. That's that trust and obey concept. Okay, so we've got four parts from that verse. This is the same concept. This kind of summarizes the concept of submission to God. Um, this is the process by which you get there. Desire to, deny yourself, die to yourself, and follow. The crown of glory, the second one we were noting of the three, from 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The crown of glory is awarded to the believer who has developed spiritual maturity. 
Okay, glory is translated from the Greek word doxes, which means honor resulting from a good opinion based on character. Okay, when we say our job is to glorify God, what we're doing is revealing his glory. We're highlighting it. We're placing a magnifying glass over it. I usually use the ants in the magnifying glass because it usually at some point all of us have either been with someone or have been someone who's taken a magnifying glass and placed it over an ant, directed the sunlight through the magnifying glass so we can try and burn the ant up. Mostly boys have this tendency, but girls have probably seen it. Okay? But what, what do we do when we put a magnifying glass over something? We see it better. We're enhancing the characteristics of it. When you put a magnifying glass over the ant, you see its legs, you see its antenna, you see the thorax and the abdomen and its head. You see all these different things. Okay. Well, look at me. <laughs> My wife gave me a funny face. <coughs> Your mom did. I'm sure she'll be glad to hear that. <laughs> mom, Emily said you gave me the funny face. I'm sorry. You said it she also well. says she's sorry. <laughs> Doxes means honor resulting from a good opinion based on character. Okay, When we glorify something, we identify its characteristics. We magnify them. When we glorify God, what are we doing? We're revealing His characteristics to those around us. That's the job. We're not, telling, we're not making up who God is. We're saying, hey, this is who He is. He is love. He is righteous. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is eternal. He is omnipresent and omniscient. This is who our God is. You don't like it. Sorry. <laughs> Go to hell. But the believer's character is dependent upon his spiritual maturity. Thus, the crown of glory. You can laugh, it's okay. Thus, the crown of glory is awarded to the believer through application of physical principles and doctrines. Okay? Everything that we deal with with these crowns is about how we handle what God gives us. Okay? It's all about our stewardship, all about our response after we've come to the point of being saved. When we depend upon Christ, from that point on, we have this crown process that we are saving up and we are building up for the point of when we get to heaven, he will give them to us. They will be the actual the, the praise that he gives us, in which case we believe, I believe personally, that we actually cast those back at his feet. I believe that's what scripture indicates because we recognize that he alone is king. And while our achievements are there, they were only done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they do not belong to us. The honor is the result of a good opinion, which is based on the character of the one ha being of the of the one which the opinion is being made of. Okay, so the character of the spiritually mature believer produces a good um, opinion about that believer, because and then the result of that is honor. Okay, so it's honor resulting from a good opinion based on character. So the crown of glory is awarded to the believer through application of biblical principles and doctrines. See, we're dealing with trial and tribulation protocol and the faith rest technique. That's just one aspect of our spiritual maturity life and our spiritual maturity growth. We want to actually spiritually mature. We've got to look at all these different other aspects. But I can tell you one thing. If we understand the model of humanity, we will have all these things built up because if we operate within the model of humanity, if we are submitted to God, he does these things in us. So you want to know what to do? You submit to God, let him take care of the rest. That's it. You don't have to worry about, okay, I need to learn all these other things. You need to do that, but God knows what you need, and he will direct you and teach you in doing that. 
So don't worry about, oh, I gotta get this crown, I gotta get this crown, I gotta get this crown. That doesn't really sound like faith rests to me, okay? Faith rests, again, is identifying that you are relying upon God, knowing that when you do, he produces the glory of him within you. It's brilliant. It's the only way that this would ever work. The crown of life, our third crown, is the one we're talking about in James 1.12. The second re reference is Revelation 2.10, which says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, now again, this isn't talking about eternal life. It's called the crown of life. But it's referencing spiritual life, which is the life that Jesus came to give. It's a quality of life that transcends human and physical life. Okay, the crown of life is not eternal life. It is a spirit, the spiritual life that Christ came to give. It transcends human, body, and physical soul life. Okay? It's greater than it. It operates above it. It's in a class all of its own. It is the greatest, most empirically perfect life you can have. Zoe. Zoe. It's the word from which we get life in the crown of life. In both references. That's why we know we're talking about the same thing. Um, the grammar, by the way, is the same. Crown of life, crown of life. Um, same exact stuff. Um, with the phrase, same exact pieces of grammar and stuff. So that's also one of the ways we know it's the same exact thing we're talking about. It's pretty clear even in English that that's the same thing, but Greek emphasizes that all the more. Okay, now the crown of life is, is awarded through development of the faith, faith rest technique. How faith rested are you? Do you come across one circumstance and you're good, two circumstances, you're good, but then the third one starts wearing on you and the fourth one hits and you're like it's all over okay i'm doing this on my own i'm taking care of this this is done okay ultimately we should never have that off we should never have that problem we should never get up out of our chair of resting upon god we should never lose our faith rest mentality the faith rest technique is the believer's ability again to rest in complete dependency upon god during trying circumstances the believer is able to do this because of god's promises Okay, trials, tribulations, temptation, all of these things are pressures exerted upon us externally that we are supposed to bear under because we can in dependency upon God. That's the faith rest technique. This crown is awarded to the believer who believes God's promises and rests in faith upon them throughout his circumstances. You want to get this crown? Submit to God. You thought I was going to say do this, huh? Yeah, submit to God, it'll be taken care of. Go ahead. Question? Oh, and it worked. The crown of life is the crown which we're talking about um, in James when James says that this crown belongs to the man who is transitioning from an unrighteous state to a genuinely righteous state as a result of testing. However, and under however, it's a good thing to look at. This is contingent or dependent upon the believer resting in faith upon the word and promises of God relative to trials and tribulations. Now, we've, we've taken it from the crown of life, zoomed out, to zoomed in with James, specifically. That's why we're back talking about the word and promises of God relative to trials and tribulations, because now we're talking about James saying that the crown of life is awarded to those who implement faith rest technique and the trial and tribulation protocol when they encounter a trial. Resting in faith upon God and his promises brings stability to the believer's life and allows spiritual maturity to be developed. It also means your favorite color will most likely be blue. That's not from scripture. That's totally secular. It's not going to work out every time, but it's a good little basis. Okay, <laughs> Stability. Without stability, that's extra. You don't have to pay for that either. 
Without stability, what happens to the believer? He's fighting, chaotic the whole time. What is Satan's greatest tactic? To create disorder and disrupt what God has done. And look at Garden of Eden. He didn't really care about Eve getting information or knowledge or having a conscience of good and evil. No, he said, hey, you'll be like God. And Satan knew, hey, if she's like God, then I'm like God. And all these other things are going on in his head. And you guys are trying to figure out what's going on in my head, huh? So, so back to the point we're trying to make <coughs> is that Satan disrupts and causes chaos. If you're trying to overthrow a country, what do you do? You cause chaos and then provide the answer to it. What do we have prophetically of, of the end times? There will be chaos. Probably what we're identifying as World War III. It may be World War XX. We don't know how long it is. We don't know how far the earth has to get to get there. Frankly, I wish it was World War III instead of twenty. I wish it was happening right now. But not World War Three. The end times would be done out of here. That's I wasn't talking about death. We'll be, we'll be dead and out of here. Yeah, we'll be we'll be long gone. Together, so yeah, I'd rather the eighty years not be World War Three. Yeah, we don't want an eighty-year war. Yeah, I, I get it. I was just clarifying. I wasn't saying I want the war right now. Okay. We digress again. Okay. <laughs> I might pay. I might charge you for this for that one. I don't know. Um. If you're trying to take over a country, what do you do? You cause disorder. You go in and provide order. If Satan is trying to overthrow God's kingdom or to make his own kingdom, and God has said, hey, man is designed, this earth is designed to prove I am who I say I am and, and glorify me, and Satan says, I'm going to take that over, which is a little bit about the angelic conflict, which we haven't studied yet, but it's a great study we'll get to in five years, or maybe at the end of the World War three eighty years. I don't know. <clears throat> He has to, Satan has to cause this disorder before he can then infiltrate. We're seeing the shift politically in, the, in America. When did it start? It started with disorder. All these little things, little pricks coming in. Take the Bible out of school. What happened to our test scores? Dropped out drastically. All these little things just started the war where this chaos now has resulted, and we may have another civil war coming up in November. Seems like the liberals and the left side are preparing for it. I don't know if you've heard, but... Obama signed an executive order identifying that Homeland or that um, the Social Security Agency, I believe it was. I don't know if you, did you hear this article today. He signed an executive order on October. Yeah, October 26th, he signed an executive order identifying a non-military government organization to have military powers. You've heard a little bit probably about, and maybe not, but um, like we've got like Social Security, the IRS. Um, they've been buying a bunch of ammo lately, a ton of it. I mean, we're talking not. Not minim, minimal amounts. There. They've been buying a ton of it, so and it's been building up everywhere around the country. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, they totally don't need it, and they've done it under the guise that well, we have officers who enforce certain things. Well, no, they're buying way more than the amount of officers they have could ever use. It's not. This is something that we're not looking forward to. But Obama on twenty sixth signed an executive order identifying that they all that they have military powers now. And I forget the name of the organization he did specifically. Um, I don't believe it was all of them. But it's it's hugely bogus. But we are preparing for some sort of violent conflict. Well, and they might, it might also be that they recognize that if collapse comes as collapse is predicted, that, that ammunition could very well be an important currency one. Like, and a, a sign of power and strength, right. yeah. So, there, I don't know what's going to happen, but as an American, it's increasingly scary to me. 
but as a sojourner, it's time to go home, in my opinion. There are a lot of, yeah, there's been talk that there will be riots. Yeah. Yeah, there's been riots before. I, I think it's. I don't know if it's because I'm on the opposing side of the current administration or what, but it seems like there's greater hatred and greater violence threatened at this point than previously. But I may not have paid attention to it previously because I didn't really care about it as much. I don't know. But disorder has to be there before order can be remade. God, Satan has to destroy God's world system first before he can put his world system in place. If you don't take out God's world system, it doesn't work. Okay. God will not let that happen. Okay, this earth is not God's home. It's a footstool. Yeah, whoa, that's right. <laughs> Resting in faith upon God and his promises brings stability to the believer's life. Without stability, we cannot grow spiritually. Okay? It doesn't work. We have to have stability for us to actually progress in spiritual maturity. Now, we, we may learn something and then chaos strikes and we forget everything we've ever learned and the spiritual growth that we had, we lose a little bit and we come back in fellowship finally and then we remember part of it, but we will have to be retaught. It's part of the way our bodies were designed. I'm not going to get into the whole brain thing because we've talked about that before. Um, but here's our summary of the three crowns, just to move us along. The crown of righteousness will be awarded based on the time you spend under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's that saturation one. This is the crown of righteousness. Now, this again is experiential righteousness, development of spiritual maturity. All these relate to spiritual maturity, but a different aspect. This is the amount of time you spend under the control of the Holy Spirit, where he has saturated you to the point of control. Number two, the crown of glory will be based on your reflection of Christ as a result of your development of spiritual maturity. Not of your reflection externally to others, but when you get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, when he looks at you and sees his righteousness in you or an amount of his righteousness in you, how much will be there? The crown of glory is based upon that righteousness which is developed through your spiritual maturity. Number three, again, the one we're talking about here in James 1.12, the crown of life will be awarded on the basis of your overcoming circumstances through the faith rest technique. So not being overcome by them, but overcoming them, being able to abide in God and remain under those trials through the faith rest technique. Noel. The concept is that we earn all of them, and the stack them. Yeah, or or they're intertwined together. I don't know how it works, but the concept is that there's more than one crown that we earn for more than one different things. Okay. So yeah, you don't just get one. It's not like okay, I'm going to focus on this. Because again, that's not submission to God, is it? It is a good question. Oh man, we're only 40 slides in. James says that the man resting in faith upon God's word in his relationship with God is participating in the action of acquiring for himself the crown of life at a point in time in the future. I gave you that reference, the judgment seat of Christ, which is the only place where believers will go, is the judgment seat of Christ. We don't go to the great white throne judgment because that's more of a sentencing than a judgment. There's no court, there's no evaluation that goes on there. It's actually the, the passing of judgment. And that's being cast in the lake of fire. Satan and company, all non-believers. So this is referencing the judgment seat of Christ or the place where believers go to have their works evaluated as to whether they're good or bad. 
The Greek grammar indicates, through the use of the participle tense, that the action of the believer becoming genuinely righteous through faith rest must occur prior to the action of taking hold of the crown. Crown's a future action. Okay, we've got that future tense. But the grammar indicates with participles that the, with an aorist participle specifically, that the action of becoming genuinely righteous, and this is again experientially, and this isn't completely righteous, but becoming more like righteousness, or picking up various pieces of righteousness along the way, that being an aorist participle used in conjunction with a future main verb identifies that the action of becoming genuinely righteous must occur prior to the giving of the crown. Okay, now look at this second paragraph down here. When an aorist participle is used in conjunction with an aorist main verb, the expression is simultaneous, meaning that the participle and the verb occur at the same time. In all other cases, except where context demands otherwise, which is a minuscule amount, the aorist participle expresses action antecedent or prior to the main verb. So the becoming righteous happens prior to the giving of the crown. Okay? Here's our aorist participle, genomenos, once he has been, which again is that changing from one state to another. And the future main verb that's in reference with this passage, he will receive lampsitai, uh, which we've identified as being he will participate in the action of taking hold of at a point in time in the future. So because genomenos is an aorist participle and lampsitai is a future main verb, the action of becoming genuinely righteous occurs prior to the action of receiving or taking hold of the crown of righteousness or crown of life. That makes pretty good sense, right? Okay, this is good stuff. Participles with their tense, it's unbelievable what they can show. We did a rabbit trail on that last week. You can go back and read the notes. Actually, you can go back and listen to the audio because it's not on the notes. Both of these actions are middle voice, however, both the main verb and the participle. And that identifies that the participle and the main verb both have the subject participating with them. Okay, so we participate in the action of becoming genuinely righteous through our faith rest upon God's word, him, and, his, uh, apply, and through application of scripture. And then in the future, we participate in taking hold of the crown of life. Now, we're not the ones that just take hold of it. That would indicate to us that Jesus actually hands it down, since he's the giver of the crown, to us, and we take hold of it. Or that we both go up together to grab the crown. Um, it seems more likely, since it's the judgment seat of Christ, and he's the one doing the evaluation, that he will be handing it, and we will participate in taking hold of it. Meaning that it's being given to us, and we will grab it. That's the concept being employed from what we can see in the grammar. Okay. Which crown is it? The believer can expect to receive the crown of life as a result of the faith rest technique due to the promise of God. So the question isn't which crown is it, but, uh, well actually I guess we'll leave it. Which crown is it? It's the one that the Lord has promised. It's the crown of life which the Lord has promised. On, which is pronounced on, is a relative pronoun which means the one which. Last week we looked at uh, the word os, and it means the one who. Finding typos like crazy. Sorry. <clears throat> on is a different form of that same word, the, meaning the one who. 
And in this case, it refers to an object because of the accusative case. Okay, so this form on versus os, so instead of the little snake kind of looking thing, you got the v looking thing, the sigma to the nu. Because of that difference, we have a reference to an object, add an accusative case, and we have a very good strong argument that this is referring to an object instead of a person. Okay, why do you care about that? You don't really accept that I'm telling you that's what makes it relate to the crown. Um, now, this, this is an accusative case just as is the crown of life. So that's part of the way we also know that this is referring to the crown of life specifically and not just to some other thing out there, okay, not some other object. Because they match, we have pretty good proof. I mean, can't get better than that. On epengalato is the phrase that we have for the which the Lord has promised. Epengalato is a verb which means to declare to do something with implication of obligation to accomplish it promise. When we make a promise, we're saying we're going to do this, and we are implicating ourselves in the accomplishment of it. Okay, I promise you this. I promise you that this will happen. See, if we don't want to promise things we can't make happen. Why not? Because then we are implicated in their failure, and we've made a promise now we can't keep. We're supposed to make promises we can keep because we will be implicated, and we are obligated to make them happen when we promise them. You know, others would say that the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, so there's no reason to make vows, promises, or to curse. Um, I would say that's probably true. That's James 5.12 if you want to look at it later. <clears throat> the other thing to note here is in the English New American Standard, they've translated it, which the Lord has promised. The Lord is in italics in your Bibles because it is not in the original manuscript text. However, the implication is that Jesus is the one who has made the promise and obligated himself to fulfill it. That again is cross-reference to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, which talks about the judgment seat of Christ and our evaluation of our works as either good or bad, burning up through fire the bad works and producing good works on the other side. That is a part of this process. That's the judgment seat of Christ. Okay. So because of that harmony, because of a couple other passages of Scripture, we have clear indication that this is the Lord or Jesus who has promised them and obligated himself to bring them about. <coughs> So key things there, the declaration to do something, and the implication to accomplish it. Okay, so God has promised that we will take hold of this, or Jesus has promised that we will take hold of this, and that's part of his participation in it. Tes agaposin autu. Tes agaposin is a reference to believers. Again, we had the haters earlier and the, and the lovers. Um, agaposin is a participle, meaning the ones performing the action of loving. It's describing people by their action of loving God. Now this type of love is unconditional love, and the object being loved is Abtu, which is the third person reference to him. It's a reference to the promiser, Jesus, the Lord. And promiser is not a real word, I understand that, I am making it up because it actually applies better than any other words we could come up with. So it's a reference to the promiser, who is Jesus, the Lord. Okay, taste agaposin autu is used as a reference to believers who agapao Jesus. They're being described by that verb agapao. Agapao is the same love with which God loved humanity in John 3.16, and it is unconditional love which manifests itself in giving regardless of the response it receives. Unconditional love kind of succinctly says that, but the concept is that this love is given regardless of how it is received by the object being loved and by those around the object being loved. It is unconditional conditional. Okay? It doesn't stop. It isn't earned. It's not, nothing else dictates the action of loving except for the person doing the loving. 
It's a choice to actually love this way. Agaposin is an aorist participle. Okay, now we just looked at participles earlier. We're going to get to that in a couple slides from now. But look at this. We have the present participle. Oh, I blew it. Agaposin is a present participle. It's not a... I'm all messed up. Where'd I go? Let me just change that and restate that. Agaposin is a present participle. Okay, so don't believe that little word aorist right there. Okay, now we had the aorist participle earlier. Present participle being agaposin, the one's loving, and the aorist main verb. So now we're looking to see when the actions occur. Does the participle act occur before the main verb? Does the main verb occur at the same time as the participle, or does it happen um, differently? So because the main verb is in the aorist tense, with epe galato being an aorist verb, and the participle in the present tense, the grammar identifies the promise was made prior to the action of the participle. So the promise occurred to give the crown of life to those who loved God prior to those who loved God loving God. Did you follow that? The, uh, the promise that Jesus made was promised before, prior to, the ones who would receive it, the ones loving God, actually existed and loved God. That second paragraph down there, when present participle is used in conjunction with an aorist main verb, the expression is subsequent, meaning afterward. The action of the main verb occurs prior to the action of the present participle. You can look that up in a Greek grammar. It's there almost word for word. Okay, that's my summary of it. So the promise of Jesus to award the crown of life to those loving him unconditionally was made prior to him being loved unconditionally by believers. This was no afterthought of God's, in other words. This was planned. This was from the get-go part of the plan. We're going to send a Messiah. Jesus, you'll be the Messiah. You will do this. You will live a righteous life. You will show them the model of humanity. You will identify what righteousness is. You will show them the original order. You will die on the cross, sat satiate the demand for justice and penalty of sin. That sin will be the sin of humanity will be imputed to you. Those who accept you as their Savior will have your righteousness imputed to them and gain actually the same life that you have being eternal life. After that, they will progress through spiritual maturity to obtain the righteousness you had. This is all part of God's plan from the get-go, to deal with the sin problem, to prove to Satan and company, not because he needs to, but because Satan appealed to him to do so, that God is loving and just. All this comes back down to Satan's five I wills, and God saying, I will use man to prove Satan that I am loving and that I am just, because you have asked me to. God has no need to actually do this. But he is loving, and he is just, and so because the appeal was made to him by Satan, who was his adversary at the time, he is going through this in a loving way, justly identifying who he is. This is a part of his plan, and evidence of his foreknowledge and omniscience, all knowledge. Who are those who love God? We've dealt with that a little bit. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. This is Jesus speaking in John 14, 21. That first part right there tells us all we need to know. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. This word, the words for loves, all the different loves in there, come from the same Greek word, and it's agapao, love. Unconditional love, which manifests itself in giving, regardless of the response.
The question you need to ask is, do you agapao God? Do you agapao Jesus? And if you do, then his commandments should be being kept by you. And if they're not, then you need to find out whether you are actually unconditionally loving him in that moment in time. Because again, love is a choice. We choose whether to unconditionally love God or not. But when we choose not to keep his commandments, we choose not to love him. We may love him in the sense that he's our savior and he's our God, he's our provider, but we are not loving him. We're not doing the action. And that's our study for tonight, all 53 slides of it. Any questions? Okay.